From the University of Cambridge and the Center of Governance and Human Rights, hi, and welcome to this episode of Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast. In every episode, we explore human rights issues with people who study them and people who fight for them. On today's episode, we have the honor and privilege of hosting Lord Chris Smith of Finsbury. Lord Smith is a current master of Pembroke College at the University of Cambridge. Before this, he was a Labour Member of Parliament from 1983 to 2005 and is widely known as the first openly gay member of Parliament. Under Tony Blair's government, he was appointed Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport and has held directorial positions at the Clore Leadership Program and the Environment Agency, amongst others. Beyond being an ardent critic of the Iraq War, he has been a vocal advocate for doing more as a community to address the plight of refugees, which brings me to today's episode. Today, we'll be talking about external borders and internal politics, trying to get to grips with what democracies owe refugees. As a long-standing former policymaker and member of parliament, Laura Smith will help us shed light on the domestic politics of the Syrian refugee crisis and perhaps even suggest a few ways forward from here. Laura Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. A great pleasure. As a former member of parliament, you will have witnessed and participated in many debates that either did or did not galvanize the national spirit. Um, I think there are a few topics that engage people from many different walks of life as much as the topic of migration today. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think part of the reason is that uh, migration has become uh, so much bigger than um, uh, it has tended to be mm. over the recent decades. Uh, and that's partly because of the uh, huge tragedy of the conflict in Syria. Mm-hmm. It's partly because of um, uh, increasing drought and famine and difficulty in um, uh, sub-Saharan and Saharan Africa. Mm. Uh, it's uh, partly because of some of the beginnings we're now seeing of the impact of climate change on uh, the ability of people to make a living for themselves in where they have traditionally lived. There are all sorts of, uh, of things that are having an impact on people and um, uh, leading to uh, a, 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 a mass migration uh, impact mm-hmm. that we haven't seen for quite a long time Um, so I think the quantity of the problem uh, has uh, increased and that's one of the reasons why it's become so um, uh, so important in domestic politics especially in Europe and America Um, uh, but I think there's something else as well and that is that uh, since the uh, financial crisis of uh, 2008 and onwards Um, What many democracies have been facing over the course of the last 10 years has been severe austerity, Mm -hmm. Uh, falling living living standards amongst the domestic population, uh, earnings that haven't kept rise with inflation, uh, lots of part-time and uh, gig economy jobs Mm -hmm. that uh, people have to... uh, uh, have, have to take up um, and real hardship accompanied by massive inequality because at the same time as the bulk of the population in most of these countries has been experiencing real economic difficulty mm. at the same time they see some 
uh, uh, rather small numbers of people doing really well. Mm -hmm. And uh, that combination of austerity, um, economic difficulty and disadvantage and inequality has uh, led people to want to kick against something. Mm -hmm. Coupled with all of that, so we have large quantities of migration. We have uh, austerity and economic difficulty for the, the mass of the population. And at the same time, uh, we have uh, a, a number of unscrupulous populist politicians who have used migration as a scapegoat for the difficulties that people feel they're experiencing. Okay. And that uh, combination, I think, has led to the really serious impact that the uh, migration issue uh, has been having across Europe and America over the course of the uh, last 10 years or so. That's, that's really interesting, especially pointing out that these gig economy jobs that are, that are emerging in this space, given this sort of very opportunistic moment, I suppose, where there is austerity and where there is a need for, at least from the perspective of, of uh, those who create these uh, gig economy jobs, for more flexibilized forces of labor. And, and of course, what we see yeah. is the gig economy jobs are being done largely by people who have recently uh, migrated into the country where, they, where they're working. And, and there the paradox for me is really so, you know, as a contributor to the ever more flexibilizing job market, aren't the tech corporations who create these jobs and who create these platforms also to be held to, to account? It's interesting to see that the kind of people who are being scapegoated are really part of the same group who are experiencing the adverse effect of the flexibilization of the market. Uh, the, that is undoubtedly true that... Um, uh, uh, the, the people who are being scapegoated are also suffering the uh, the economic disadvantage that people generally feel. Um, uh, but of course, there's a there's an even deeper irony here, uh, in that uh, we are in most developed economies an increasingly aging society. And the balance within society between the wealth consumers who have retired and are no longer active in the economy, um, uh, but have a standard of living that they wish to uh, maintain, sure. and the people who actually create the wealth and do the jobs, that balance is changing. Um, uh, if you're going to support that increasingly aging population... Uh, you can do it in, um, uh, in, in three different ways. One is uh, the diminishing uh, wealth-producing workforce works uh, uh, amazingly harder and more productively. Mm -hmm. Now, some of that will happen with the development of AI and robotics and increasing um, uh, ways of uh, uh, doing things without depending on people to do them. Um, but that isn't of itself a solution to the problem. Mm -hmm. Or you increase the birth rate dramatically. In most Western societies, that is not going to happen. Or you uh, bring in uh, immigrants who become the workforce that pay the pensions sure. for the people who have 
uh, now retired. Mm. And uh, if you try and explain that to your average pensioner uh, who believes that people are coming into the country and stealing jobs and uh, being dependent on welfare, they, they just would not understand that those are the connections mm. that are actually crucial for keeping society going in the long run. To sort of move on a little bit from here, on the one hand, of course, there is a responsibility to uh, carry out the politics that one promised uh, one's constituents. But on the other hand, there's also a responsibility to those who our policies affect uh, indirectly, even if they aren't a part of our body politic. So we spoke before about how domestic uh, policy has increasingly also concerned itself with the question of the refugee crisis. My question is, what kind of responsibility do we have to refugees who are between borders and who are in Europe and traveling through the Mediterranean to get here and who are inadvertently a product of, of some of the policies that different governments have taken in the past and have carried out in the past? Uh, my answer would be we have a human responsibility. Uh, yes, of course, as representative uh, lawmakers, mm -hmm. uh, politicians have a duty to uh, the people who elected them, to the promises that they made, to the um, well-being and, uh, uh, and future of the people that they are representing. Sure. That is their primary duty. Yes. But alongside that... They have a broader duty mm -hmm. to humanity. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, it, it's um, uh, most uh, obviously um, exemplified if you look back to a lot of the debates that were happening in the 1950s and 1960s uh, about the use of the death penalty yes. uh, for people who've committed murder. Mm -hmm. Overwhelming majorities of the population, uh, including most people in individual MPs' constituencies, when asked, uh, were saying, yes, you've got to have the death penalty. You hang, hang a murderer. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and yet politicians in the 1960s had the uh, courage to say, actually, no. We've got a we've got a, a wider uh, moral duty here. Mm -hmm. um, for a start, the state often makes mistakes and takes the wrong life. Um, but secondly, the state ought not to be taking a life in this way anyway. Mm -hmm. And the um, uh, and and politicians led the public mm -hmm. on that uh, on that issue. Um, and. Uh, even though you wouldn't get an overwhelming majority now for having no death penalty, nonetheless, public opinion has shifted and shifted pretty dramatically over that intervening 50-year period. Um, uh, politicians in that instance did the right thing, mm -hmm. even though they weren't accurately reflecting the views of their constituents at the time. Mm -hmm. So... Exactly the same principle needs to be applied when we think about, well, what should our response be to the migration crisis that is now uh, a, a affecting the whole of Europe? Absolutely. 
And um, I, uh, I don't think any of us, uh, simply because it isn't a practical policy, uh, would say we should just open our arms and say whoever uh, ends up here, we are going to uh, welcome them and look after them. We, we simply couldn't do that given the scale of what's happening. But uh, standing up and saying we've got to play our part, we've got to do our fair share, mm-hmm. um, we've, uh, we've got to help with this uh, crisis. And, by the way, um, it will be of assistance to our economy in the long run mm-hmm. uh, if we do so. Uh, that, I think, is something that uh, I, I would like to see more politicians having the courage to say. What I am worried about is how pro-immigration views are often equated to far-removed cosmopolitans in ivory towers. And I wonder if there's an argument, in your opinion, that could get individuals across the aisle from different political ideologies or political leanings together around a table to generate meaningful policies around refugees and migration broadly. Economic gain is obviously one of them that's been espoused, but but how can we get people around sort of a common sentiment? Um the um, uh, the the first thing to say is there's a really interesting phenomenon uh, that on the whole uh, local electorates mm-hmm. who vote against immigration and uh, vote for candidates who are uh, virulently anti-immigrant mm-hmm. tend to be those electorates in areas where there isn't very much immigration. Mm-hmm. The area in the UK that has far and away the most diverse population full of people who have migrated from all across the world is London. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, London is probably the part of the country uh, that is least anti-immigrant mm-hmm. of, of the entirety of the UK. Sure. Um, so it, it's... Um, uh, it's something where direct experience of living cheek by jowl with immigrant communities actually benefits the cause of uh, treating immigrants properly and decently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but in addition to that, you will always have exploitative populist politicians uh, who will see this as a potential weapon for them to use to enable them to get into power. Sure. You'll always have that problem. Um, is it possible for uh, more considered, more moderate uh, political forces across all parties um, uh, to reach better conclusions? Yes, but it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I think back particularly to um, when Enoch Powell made his infamous Rivers of Blood speech um, uh, back in uh, the 1960s. Uh, And Edward Heath, who was leader of the Conservative Party at the time, immediately sacked Enoch Powell from his front bench. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, that was... Uh, someone on the centre-right of politics taking very firm and immediate action to say, this isn't us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I would hope that we would, on both sides of politics, uh, that we would get some more of that 
uh, over the uh, over the future. Um, uh, take, uh, for example, all the issues about uh, freedom of movement within the EU. Um, what no one has pointed out in the debate over this through the whole of the referendum campaign and since is that actually what the EU says is freedom of movement of labour. Mm -hmm. It's not freedom of movement of people. Sure. And if what we uh, concentrated on was getting the right sort of, uh, uh, of framework in place agreed by all political parties about provisions for, uh, yes, you can come, but uh, you have to be uh, in a job within three months of coming, sure. the, the, that we, we would have solved a lot of the problems that we had in the referendum campaign. Mm -hmm. um, will we get that sort of cross-party uh, initiative happening? I don't see it in the immediate future, but I think it has to come over the course of the next few years. That's really profound. I think um, the migration debate and the refugee crisis generally has taken an interesting turn amidst Brexit. Um, and one of the things that one has to wonder is to to what extent it is also somewhat of a result of the kinds of, of people, the kind of class and groups who would originally claim progressive policies or who would originally sort of struggle for progressive policies are the ones who have maybe been somewhat sidelined by more cosmopolitan parties. Increasingly, the very people who were fighting for, for socialism are now the ones who are being told, you are baskets of deplorables, or you are uneducated, or you are, uh, you just don't have a job and don't know what you're talking about. And so I wonder whether there is something to be said about the broader coalition building that needs to happen also on, on the left between working class, individuals, academics. You're, you're absolutely right in that. Um, uh, one of the things that uh, very strongly strikes me is that uh, in the UK, uh, the left, especially with the, in terms of the Labour Party, has been successful over the course of the last hundred years when it has been an alliance between progressive intellectuals and working class people. Absolutely. And that's the combination. That's the combination that uh, started the Labour Party in the first place. Sure. It was the the, the the Sydney Webbs and the Fabians together with the trade unions mm -hmm. that founded the Labour Party. And uh, in 45, in 66, in 97, it, when the Labour Party has won big, um, it has won big because it has managed to cement that relationship together. Sure. And that, I fear, is now breaking apart mm -hmm. and um, uh, uh, and that alliance of progressives with working class people is not just breaking apart in the UK, it's breaking apart in some European countries yes. and especially in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and parties of the left cannot win uh, power and do things simply on the back of progressive intellectuals. Mm -hmm. They mustn't abandon progressive intellectualism, but they need to reach out to and embrace and represent and take on side mm -hmm. working class people as well. Um, 
And uh, that means recognising that lots of working class people uh, have genuine concerns about um, immigration and its impact on their communities. Um, it doesn't mean simply accepting that uh, immigration is therefore a bad thing, mm -hmm. uh, but it does mean taking people's genuine concerns and addressing them and talking through them and finding ways of getting something that will um, uh, that working class people will feel really matters to and supports them mm -hmm. uh, without indulging in scapegoating and um, uh, inhuman uh, treatment. Um, uh, so, uh, so yes, there is this need to, um, uh, to, to find ways of reuniting this political um, uh, force that, uh, that, 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 is, is always and must always be the heart of what uh, the, the, the centre-left and the left uh, are uh, all about. But I uh, say very strongly we mustn't abandon the progressive intellectual bit of the equation. Mm -hmm. One of the very worst things that anyone said during the referendum campaign was when Michael Gove said, we've had too much of experts. Mm -hmm. um, it, the, the moment that you abandon all sense of policymaking and governance being about uh, things that are evidence-based, that derive from fact, uh, that have researched and understood what the problems are and have come up with careful solutions to them, the moment you abandon that policy-making process, you're into the gut politics, the identity politics, the, uh, the body blow politics mm -hmm. that takes you down a Trump route, uh, may be very effective mm -hmm. for a period with a particular segment of the electorate, but ultimately it leads to disaster. So I think I have one last question surrounding this before I'm going to take it back to, to refugees more specifically and talking about how we can develop a rights-based policy framework in the UK. I, I want to touch upon this identity politics part that you that you bring up, which Trump has very successfully utilized, it's being successfully utilized in Denmark right now, where increasingly the center-right government is drawing on questions of cultural war with parallel societies existing within the Danish sphere. I, I, I did some research last year where I found that people in further removed places who do not, who are not exposed to immigrants, who, as you also explained, um, therefore my, may experience more xenophobic uh, sentiments towards uh, towards immigrants, also have this feeling of of this perception of social decline, right? That Danishness or Britishness might be dissipating, and and whilst obviously we've seen now parties take advantage of that and saying yes, Danishness is disappearing or Britishness is disappearing, let's get around and and make sure that it doesn't, and let's make sure that outside influence doesn't get in here. How do you tackle that kind of sentiment without wholly uh, trivializing the sense of national identity people have. You, 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 you do it by giving people hope. The, um, uh, the best example 
is the uh, 1945 government uh, here in the UK, immediately after the Second World War, the, the slogan um, that Labour went into that election with was, now win the peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they firmly fixed into people's minds the sense that, yes, we had the patriotic duty of, of fighting and winning the Second World War, mm-hmm. but now we have the patriotic duty of creating a better society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sense of uh, you know, this is now the national purpose mm-hmm. um, was something that uh, I think got deeply embedded in the culture of the country even though the country was going through still a lot of economic hardship and um, uh, there was still rationing for six years after the war and so on despite that there was a sense that real progress was being made and there was a sense of shared national purpose about doing it Mm. that's the way that you um, uh, you manage to get a uh, that that sense of identity of yes. what Britishness is. Um, now, uh, one of the uh, problems for uh, for Labour, I, I, I think, to a certain extent, Tony Blair had a bit of that in 1997 uh, with New Labour and the um, uh, the the. Um, uh, mantra that we went through that entire election campaign uh, was it's about um, uh, the future not the past it's about leadership not drift it's about the many not the few and uh, that sense of this is about the future of the country and that's where we're heading uh, I think captured a, 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 a mood and a sense of identity at that mm-hmm. moment it had dissipated by 2010. And since then, uh, uh, we've had none of that apart from uh, a completely false attempt to uh, recreate it by the Brexiteers Mm -hmm. over the Brexit referendum. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we haven't, other than that, had anything that's really appealed to a sense of nationhood and common shared patriotic purpose. And um, uh, that that's the way you will get some of that back. We had a former guest on the show, Dr. Shailaja Finnell out of the Center of Development Studies, who also said uh, the same thing and, and reiterated that unfortunately, um, war should have, uh, sort of shows us the, the worst of humanity, but also the best of humanity insofar that everybody has, has lost a son and everybody has lost a daughter. And so that's something that we can all get around. But in the absence of the kinds of um, violence that we saw in Second World War and First World War, um, you have to wonder what can get people back around the table to take the country forward. Absolutely. So uh, refugee destinies, as much as immigrant destinies, uh, generally fluctuate with governments and elections that that come and go. And I'm wondering where there is a case to be made for sort of a rights-based policy framework in the UK Uh, which has been a once strong advocate and founding father of, for example, the European Court of Human Rights and is now seemingly not necessarily fully abandoning, but at least uh, the position of the UK within the human rights space is becoming increasingly diminished. Um, 
I, uh, the UK is um, facing diminished authority everywhere at the moment, largely because of the folly of Brexit. But um, uh, within this issue, um, to a certain extent, um, uh, I, I, I think the uh, issue has become so big mm-hmm in terms of the, the sheer numbers of, uh, uh, of refugees, um, the, the, the framework of rights that we, um, uh, that, that uh, we have had in place over the last 20 or 30 years are becoming much more difficult to, uh, to make sense of within the context of what's happening. Um, the um, the genuine fear of uh, of persecution test the um, uh, uh, the the claim must be made in the first country that you come to uh, once you've fled test um, all of all of this is uh, is becoming much more difficult mm. to um, uh, to uphold when. Uh, you have uh, people initially flooding out of Syria and into Greece. Now people flooding out of North Africa and coming into Italy. Um, the, the, the countries on the front line mm-hmm. um, within Europe um, are, um, uh, are, are, are saying to the rest of Europe, hang on a moment, yeah, this is us that's, that's, um, uh, that's getting this issue mm-hmm. and we can't deal with it just on our own. Sure. Um, and, and that, I think, is the new uh, factor that needs to be brought into the equation. Rights are still very important and... Um, uh, uh, and I don't think you can have uh, an appropriate uh, treatment of refugee claimants uh, without having some structure of rights in place. Mm-hmm. But what you also need to add into that equation is a sharing of responsibility for providing the answers across a much wider range of countries. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I uh, really uh, despair about is the failure of the UK to step up to the plate in um, uh, providing a share of the response to the Syrian uh, refugee crisis, for example. Um, Not even meeting the grudging totals uh, in relation to unaccompanied children uh, that was put in place by the Dubs Amendment. Um, And and that had to be forced on the government. And they haven't even fulfilled their duties under that um, uh, since then. The the UK's response has been pathetic. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But there does need to be a sharing of responsibility across the widest possible range of countries. But there has been videos surfacing, and this happens every year, of the time that uh, that MP Joe Cox uh, spent in Parliament and really uh, pleaded that uh, that the government take action on the up to 90,000 uh, unaccompanied children who are currently roaming, refugee children who are currently uh, roaming Europe, which is obviously a despicable number. 
um, any number would be despicable. Uh, with that said, and, and with this sort of lack of responsiveness that we've seen across, across Europe to this crisis of not just numbers and but a crisis of conscience, really, um, I uh, am looking for a silver lining and I'm looking for hope. And so I wonder if you were to provide light in, amidst all of this darkness, um, what, would you, what would you say that you're hopeful about in this climate? Uh, I wish I could be more hopeful mm -hmm. than I am. Um, I, I think um, uh, two things. Uh, uh, first of all, um, uh, l look at and highlight the human impact of policy decisions that get made. Mm -hmm. It, the most obvious example is Trump and the separation of families at the Mexican border. Um, the, um, the fact that uh, people saw children being torn away from their parents, yeah. saw them being housed in cages, um, saw the, 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 the human consequences of what was happening, mm -hmm. uh, uh, prompted a sufficient outrage, uh, particularly amongst the public, but then also within Congress, mm -hmm. um, that it eventually sort of changed the um, uh, administration's uh, uh, way of conducting its policy. Sure. Um, the um, So uh, uh, actually seeing the real human consequences mm -hmm of something that uh, otherwise is just an abstract policy uh, is hugely important. Yes. Um, similarly, um, when uh, the young dead Syrian child was washed up on a beach in Greece uh, and the photograph went around the world, um, it suddenly for a brief moment people thought that Actually, this is not just about hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, this is about real individuals, and uh, yeah, that could be me. Absolutely. And so, um, the more that people can get to see the the human beings at the heart of this, uh, the better. Mm -hmm. And. Um, uh, getting more of that uh, coverage picked up by media across the world not easy because a lot of the media is um, uh, owned and uh, directed by not very nice people mm. but uh, the more of that that can uh, can happen including on social media the better um uh, other bits of uh, where does the hope lie? I think also the hope lies in uh, uh, thriving, uh, multicultural, diverse communities showing that they can make a terrific success of being and working together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, which is one of the reasons why London is such an important uh, exemplar, not just for the UK, but for around the world. Mm. Um, uh, that um, uh, it, it, 
getting a sense of not just the economic but the social the cultural the um uh, the sharing of, uh, of of ways of life of ways of eating of uh, uh, of ways of celebrating that come with having a multifaceted multicultural society um it, the more that that can be identified as success the better mm. um third possibility of hope i'm beginning to find others now um uh, uh it, make sure that people know the backstory mm-hmm. uh of someone like mo farah yeah. you know um son of a refugee uh brings huge uh, distinction and glory to the country um and uh, use examples like that uh, that uh, can make people suddenly think well actually um uh, some of these uh, refugees are clearly um doing great stuff and really burnishing what we are as a as a country mm-hmm. um and uh, finally i would um say we need constantly to do what joe cox did um which is to talk about what it is that genuinely makes britain great and one of the things that makes britain great is its humanity its welcome its opening of its arms its um uh, way of uh embracing uh, a a place within the international community sure. as well as within our own national borders um so do i see ways in which we can get a silver lining out of all of this yes absolutely by all of the by doing all of those things do i see lots of people doing it yet no not yet um but um hopefully one of the legacies from joe cox will be that we begin to see more mp's more politicians more public figures stepping up and doing what she did and saying there are bigger issues here yeah. i think to our listeners who are wondering what they can do uh, to help change the narrative here are some offerings of, of what they might want to get involved with as academics in this space i'd say one of the biggest responsibilities we have is not just to document uh, the kinds of uh, backstories that people come to the country with but also to understand and go and fully interrogate how people experience um, policies on the ground, how people from incipient diaspora communities and refugees and asylum seekers are uh, resisting uh, potentially nefarious power structures and how they're trying to struggle to survive in countries that they arrive to and documenting that struggle as something that is both admirable and can be potentially British and can be something that we can all get around as, yes, the struggle for life is something that is very um, known to us all. Thank you so much, Laura Smith. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Declarations. If you like what you're hearing, you can find us on all the popular podcast channels. Um, We are at Anchor FM, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Uh, Tune in next time.